This show is created for adult audiences only. While our show notes include content warnings and other helpful information, we do on occasion come across material that we feel warrants a specific content warning. This episode, more than any we have ever released, warrants just that. If you have only a cursory interest in today's topic, we have designed the story section specifically for you. While you will understand the story in its entirety, we have purposefully left out many of the disturbing details. Disturbing details that you will find in abundance in the debrief section of the episode. We respect the choice that you make either way. So here we go. Today's episode includes descriptions or sounds related to the following sensitive subjects. Child abuse. Child neglect. Extreme graphic violence. Extreme sexual violence. Violence against children. Sexual assault. Rape. Necrophilia. Dismemberment. Decapitation. Gun violence. Abduction. Strangulation. Suffocation. Mental illness. Institutionalization and suicide. And with that, let's begin. Episode 107, Edmund Kemper. Edmund Emil Kemper III was born on December 18, 1948, in Burbank, California. From the moment he took his first breath, the world seemed destined to witness the birth of a monster. His childhood, fraught with dysfunction and torment, would sow the seeds of a dark and twisted path. Ed's parents, Clarnell and Edmund Kemper Jr., had a troubled marriage, and their bitter arguments often echoed through the walls of their home. But it was Ed's relationship with his mother that would prove to be the most tumultuous. Clarnell was a domineering and controlling woman, whose relentless criticism and belittlement shaped her son's fragile psyche. As a young boy, Ed displayed signs of a troubled mind. His towering stature, standing a full head higher than his peers in elementary school, already set him apart. But it was the darkness lurking within that truly separated him. He harbored a morbid fascination with death and violence often indulging in macabre fantasies that would make even the most twisted minds recoil in horror. Ed's interest in death extended beyond mere curiosity. He found pleasure in the act of killing small animals, which provided him with a disturbing sense of power and control. 
His growing penchant for violence set him on a collision course with a destiny that even the detestable Clarnell could never have imagined. Little Ed had a close relationship with his father, and was notably devastated when his parents separated in 1957 and divorced in 61, causing him to be raised by Clarnell in Helena, Montana. He had a severely dysfunctional relationship with his mother, a neurotic, domineering alcoholic who frequently belittled, humiliated, and abused him. Clarnell often made her son sleep in a locked cellar because she feared that he would harm his sisters. Regularly mocked him for his large size. He stood six foot four inches by the age of 15 and derided him as a, quote, real weirdo in a phone conversation to Kemper's father, unaware that her son had been eavesdropping. She refused to show Kemper affection out of fear that she would, quote, turn him gay and told the young Kemper that he reminded her of his father and that no woman would ever love him. Kemper later described her as a sick, angry woman. At the age of 14, Kemper ran away from home in an attempt to reconcile with his father in Van Nuys, California. Once there, he learned that his father had remarried and now had a stepson. Kemper stayed with his father for a short while until the elder Kemper sent him to live with his paternal grandparents, who lived on a ranch in the foothills of the Sierra Nevadas. They hoped that the change of environment would help quell the darkness that consumed him. Little did they know the decision would only fan the flames of his inner demons. According to his grandparents, the isolation of the ranch allowed Ed to find solace in their company and immerse himself in their world. According to Kemper, he hated living in North Fork. He described his grandfather as senile and said that his grandmother was constantly emasculating he and his grandfather. They shared stories of hunting and killing animals, unknowingly feeding the darkness within their young grandson. Ed reveled in their tales, finding validation and a sense of purpose in the act of taking a life. In his teenage years, Ed's inner turmoil continued to fester. The strained relationship with his mother remained a constant source of anguish, fueling a deep-seated hatred that simmered just below the surface. His thoughts became increasingly consumed by fantasies of violence, domination, and a desire to exert his power over those who had belittled him. Then, on a fateful day in August of 1964, the darkness within Ed erupted in a chilling act of violence that would forever change the course of his life. At the age of 15, he decided to unleash his pent-up rage on his grandparents. Armed with a 22 caliber rifle, he shot his grandmother in the kitchen. As his grandfather approached, unaware of the horror that awaited him, Ed gunned him down in the driveway. Unsure of what to do next, he phoned his mother, who told him to contact the local police. Kemper did so, and waited to be taken into custody. The murders sent shockwaves through the community and landed young Ed in the custody of the California Youth Authority. His heinous act marked the beginning of a tragic odyssey into the depths of his twisted mind. The authorities recognized the severity of his crimes 
and Ed was subsequently committed to the Atascadero State Hospital. Within the cold walls of the psychiatric facility, Ed underwent evaluation and treatment. His violent tendencies were initially diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenia, but after closer testing was administered, they re-diagnosed him with a less severe condition, a, quote, personality trait disturbance, passive-aggressive type. They also observed him to be intelligent and introspective. Initial testing measured his IQ at 145, over two standard deviations above average. Kemper endeared himself to his psychiatrist by being a model prisoner, and he was trained to administer psychiatric tests to other inmates. A psychiatrist later said, quote, He was a very good worker, and this is not typical of a sociopath. He really took pride in his work. After years of confinement, on December 18, 1969, his 21st birthday, Kemper was released on parole from Atascadero. Against the recommendations of psychiatrists at the hospital, he was released into the care of his mother, Clarnell, who previously remarried, taken the surname Strandberg, and then later divorced again. Clarnell then resided in Aptos, California, a short drive from where she worked as an administrative assistant at the University of California, Santa Cruz, Kemper later demonstrated further to his psychiatrist that he was rehabilitated, and on November 29, 1972, his juvenile records were permanently expunged. The world welcomed him back, seemingly unaware of the ticking time bomb that walked among them. See, he appeared as an unassuming presence, a gentle giant blending seamlessly into the fabric of everyday life. But beneath his calm exterior, a storm of darkness brewed eager to be unleashed upon the world. It was the early 1970s, and Santa Cruz, California was a haven for young, free-spirited souls seeking adventure along its idyllic coastline. Unbeknownst to them, a predator lurked in the shadows, ready to exploit their innocence and fulfill his insatiable appetite for violence. From May of 1972... To April 1973, Kemper would go on to kill eight women. He would pick up female students who were hitchhiking, take them to isolated areas where he would shoot, stab, smother, or strangle them. He would then take their bodies back to his home, where he decapitated them, sexually penetrated their severed heads, and had sexual intercourse with their corpses before dismembering them and disposing of their remains in various rural locations. You see, Ed Kemper's twisted fantasies seemed to fixate on the vulnerability of young women. He roamed the streets in his vehicle searching for unsuspecting hitchhikers, offering them a seemingly harmless ride. More often than not, his victims entered his yellow 69 Ford Galaxy, completely unaware of the danger that loomed. His bumbling, awkward behavior seemed to put his victims at ease as they unwittingly stepped into the clutches of a monster. Once inside his vehicle, Kemper transformed into a sadistic predator. He methodically executed his victims, snuffing out their lives with chilling precision. Their screams were silenced, 
their hopes and dreams extinguished at the hands of a man driven by his own sick desires. But Kemper's thirst for power didn't end with their lives. He derived a perverse pleasure from defiling their corpses, committing acts too horrifying to comprehend. The desecration of their remains fed his need for control, allowing him to exert dominion over those he had killed. With each new victim, Kemper's confidence grew. The police, initially perplexed by the sudden disappearance of young women, struggled to connect the dots. As fear rippled through the community, a dark cloud settled over Santa Cruz, and it became widely known that a serial killer was in their midst. With this heightened suspicion of a killer preying on hitchhikers, students had been advised to accept rides only from cars with university stickers. Unfortunately, this did not slow him down for a second. Kemper was able to obtain a sticker as his mother worked at UCSC, and so he went on raping and murdering with near impunity for months longer. A breakthrough finally came in April of 1973 when Kemper targeted the one person who had tormented him the most, his own mother, Clarnell Strandberg Kemper. At around 11.30 p.m. on April 20th, 1973, she returned to the family home from a party, and Ed was awakened by his mother's arrival. While sitting in her bed reading a book, she noticed Kemper enter her room and said to him, quote, I suppose you're going to want to sit up all night and talk now. Kemper simply replied, no. Good night. He then waited for her to fall asleep, before sneaking back into her room to bludgeon her with a claw hammer and slit her throat with a penknife. But Kemper's twisted fantasies did not end there. Clarnell's lifeless body became the canvas for Kemper's final act of depravity. He engaged in unspeakable acts, defiling her remains with a grotesque mixture of pleasure and vengeance. He hid his mother's corpse in a closet and went to drink at a nearby bar. Upon his return, he invited his mother's best friend, 59-year-old Sarah Taylor Hallett, over to the house to have dinner and watch a movie. When Hallett arrived, Kemper bludgeoned her with a brick and strangled her to death to create a cover story that his mother and Hallett had gone away together on vacation. He subsequently put Hallett's corpse in a closet, obscured any outward signs of disturbance, and left a note to the police. It read, quote, Approximately 5.15 a.m., Saturday. No need for her to suffer anymore at the hands of this horrible, murderous butcher. It was quick, asleep, the way I wanted it. Not sloppy and incomplete, gents. Just a lack of time. I got things to do. End quote. As the sun rose over Santa Cruz that day, it illuminated a scene of unspeakable horror, and Kemper was on his way to Pueblo, Colorado. He took caffeine pills to stay awake for the over 1,000-mile journey. He had three guns and hundreds of rounds of ammunition in his car and he believed he was the target of an active manhunt. After not hearing any news on the radio about the murders of his mother and Hallett, when he arrived in Pueblo, 
he found a phone booth and called the police. He confessed to the murders of his mother and Hallett, but the police did not take his call seriously and told him to call back at a later time. Several hours later, Kemper called again, asking to speak to an officer he personally knew. He confessed to that officer of killing his mother and Hallett, then waited for the police to arrive and take him into custody. Upon his capture, Kemper also confessed to the murders of the six students. When asked in a later interview why he turned himself in, Kemper said, quote, The original purpose was gone. It wasn't serving any physical or real or emotional purpose. It was just a pure waste of time. Emotionally, I couldn't handle it much longer. Toward the end there, I started feeling the folly of the whole damn thing. And at the point of near exhaustion, near collapse, I just said to hell with it and called it all off. End quote. The arrest of Ed Kemper marked the beginning of a chilling chapter in the annals of criminal history. The man who had terrorized Santa Cruz as the co-ed killer would now face the consequences of his gruesome actions in the courtroom. As the trial commenced, the prosecution meticulously laid out the horrifying details of Kemper's crimes. The jury listened in stunned silence as the sinister narrative unfolded before them. Kemper, seemingly unaffected by the gravity of the situation, sat composed, his piercing gaze fixed on the proceedings. The defense team, recognizing the overwhelming evidence against their client, pursued an alternative route. They aimed to prove that Kemper was not guilty by reason of insanity. Presenting his troubled past, tumultuous relationship with his mother, and diagnosed mental health condition of paranoid schizophrenia as factors that contributed to his murderous rampage. Kemper chose to take the stand, a chilling display of his intelligence and manipulative nature. He charmed the courtroom with his eloquence and cunning, showcasing a level of insight into his own psyche that left even seasoned professionals disturbed. During his testimony, Kemper admitted to the brutal murders he had committed, He delved into the depths of his twisted mind, discussing his motivations, his desire for power and control, and the perverse pleasure he derived from his heinous acts. Each word he uttered peeled back the layers of his darkness, exposing the heart of a remorseless killer. On November 8, 1973, the six-man, six-woman jury deliberated for five hours before declaring Kemper sane and guilty on all counts. He asked for the death penalty, requesting, requesting, quote, death by torture. However, with a moratorium placed on capital punishment by the Supreme Court of California, he instead received seven years to life for each count, with these terms to be served concurrently, and was sentenced to the California Medical Facility in Vacaville. Within the confines of the California Medical Facility in Vacaville, Kemper embarked on a new chapter of his life, a life behind bars. It was a stark contrast to the reign of terror he had once held over Santa Cruz, now reduced to the confines of a prison cell. Imprisoned, Kemper continued to fascinate psychologists, criminologists, and researchers 
who sought to unravel the mysteries of his mind. He willingly engaged in interviews, providing unprecedented insights into the twisted workings of his psyche. His intellectual prowess and articulation made him a subject of fascination, as experts attempted to understand what made a seemingly ordinary individual transform into a remorseless serial killer. Behind bars, Kemper maintained an air of control and charisma. He developed relationships with prison staff, even becoming a trusted worker at the facility. His seemingly affable nature belied the darkness that lurked within. Today, Ed Kemper remains imprisoned, a life sentence ensuring that he will never again roam the streets, preying upon the innocent. The impact of his crimes lingers, forever etching his name into the darkest chapters of American history. A true testament to the horrors that can be unleashed by a mind twisted by violence, rage, and neglect. Welcome, campers, to Campfire Tales of the Strange and Unsettling. We are your hosts, I'm Ryan. And I'm Jordan. And now, the debrief. See, that sounds more proper. Sure. <laughs> than on the, <laughs> yeah. the weekly campout. Yeah, I think we're just used to the timing. Right, exactly. Yeah. Again, for those of you who aren't aware, we do a weekly show on our Patreon called The Weekly Campout. Yep. And uh, we, we had a whole discussion on this week's episode about the way that we introduce yeah it's it's a great show though it's like if you're if you're interested in like who we are personally mo- like more than you know what we're getting up to outside of what we do for the show right that's yeah. that's where we discuss all that so for sure if you want to check get, it out you know more intimate with us then please follow us over there yeah intimate yeah i like getting intimate. Um, <laughs> that's what i've heard well that's a that's another <laughs> show let's let's do this one <laughs> All right, so first serial killer. Man, this is a this is a doozy, that's for sure. Yes it is. The story is just it's so messed up that it's it's almost like humorous to a degree. Yeah, it's And I just, don't I don't mean that disrespectful. I just I just no. want to say, I don't mean that disrespectful at all. But it's just No, it's like, one of those things you just have to like like Oh, like Jesus Christ! Right, like, and you can't help but be like, "What is the like? What was this dude thinking?" Yeah, but he had serious, serious mommy problems. Yes, absolutely. Like I, I, I don't want to be harsh. I don't want to be you know that guy. But like, like she, she demeaned him so much and all this other stuff. I feel like there was a lot of pent up frustration. Yeah, and I, I feel like almost it almost became sexual at one point. Yeah. I don't Without know. Without a doubt. I, I mean, he's he's like a the classic displacement killer, right? Like, he killed eight people, including his grandparents, before finally killing the actual target of his rage, but right? he also which is his mom. always said it was his mom that was caught. Like, when he was, after killing his grandparents, when, you know, he was finally released, begged them to not send him back with his mother. Yeah. But the judge deemed that that was apparently the best thing. Yeah, even the psychiatrists were like, do not place him with his with his mom exactly and they did imagine yeah. how different this story would have turned out had they not done that yeah i mean there are a lot of moments like that in in his life well, like imagine yeah. what he could have been if he had been born to two totally normal parents who like yeah his and we'll get into his childhood like his mom had 
His mom did a lot of fucked up shit to him. And she, most people agree that he, that she had borderline personality disorder, right? I, I would um, almost, yeah, I would almost say so. I mean, obviously, I don't think that that was never medically a thing, right? So, yeah, like her personality yeah. was never whatever. Yeah, they um, can only diagnose her based on like stories about right. Her, but I basically. would, I would have to agree but, with that. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like the. What was that? What was that book? The boy, the boy called it, or child called yeah. it, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Like it almost gives me that those types of vibes. Like this, you know, he was forced to stay in the basement on a cot, mind you, for the majority of his life because yeah. you know his mom was afraid of him and thought he was gonna. Which you know that it's because of the way that she treated him. I'm not saying anything. I'm I'm not like you know saying like this is this is fine because she was a huge bitch, but no. Right. You know, I feel like, though, the way that she treated him as a child, no person should ever treat their children that way, first of all. Of course. But I feel like it's going to have some negative effects on their overall mental well-being. Yeah. I think it's it's a weird it's a weird thing to consider because she was obsessed with this idea. She was convinced that if she didn't, like, control him with an iron fist, that he would molest his sisters, that he would like be a a risk to to her and her daughters which on the one hand it's like is she fucking crazy on the other hand it's like it is ed kemper like maybe she saw something you know what i mean maybe she saw like the but there's no way to justify that at all right of course not regardless whether she saw something i think it was her job as a parent to make your child feel loved and loved unconditionally sure. and had she shown him that i don't think he would have turned out to be the person that he was granted there are some people that have some personality disorders they're you know like mm-hmm. things like that they, it doesn't matter but at the same yeah. time i feel like a lot of that because i mean when he was done after he killed the mom he was done yeah. nothing happened after that and then he finally and then he turned himself in again you know like yeah it was just like it had to be done, which is unfortunate, extremely unfortunate. But yeah. yeah, I don't know. That's just that's just my my take. See, that's the thing is the proper reaction to seeing signs like that would be to get your kid in therapy, not to lock them in the cellar. Without a doubt. You Agreed. know what I mean? Like that that's what you do. So maybe she saw something, but even if she did, she handled it the worst way possible. Wildly incorrect. You know. Yeah, absolutely. And it undoubtedly fucked him up. Oh, right. without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. So let's do some timeline. All okay. right. As a child, at seven years old, he would sneak out of the house with his dad's bayonet. This is before his parents separate, right? He would go to his teacher's house and hide in the bushes, where he said he fantasized even then about killing her and having sex with her corpse. Jesus. At seven years old. <coughs> Man, at seven, <laughs> yeah, seven years old. I sex was like the furthest thing from my mind. Yeah, like of eight years old. Yeah, maybe then, but seven, <laughs> seven is just crazy. Seven's just crazy. Yeah, that. Yeah, that. That's. I don't know. That's wild. Yeah, like his direct quote from from an interview is: "He said, I knew long before I started killing that I was going to be killing." Like. That's pretty intense. That That's super intense. Yeah. When his sister testified in court, she said that when she teased him about kissing his teacher, he said, 
if I kissed her, I'd have to kill her first. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Again, I apologize for laughing, but man, that's wild. It's just so crazy. It is. Yeah, it's so it's so out there. Yeah. That it's just like, that, that being the response. Yeah. Not just being like, you know, I... I don't know. I don't know. That's, but knowing the way that he did with his killings and his yep. obsession with necrophilia, yep, like that being a thing as he got older, like that, he was there all along. That's insane. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So like when he was young, it was a punishment where he would, if he got in trouble for something or some perceived slight by Clarnell, um, God, what a Clarno, fucking terrible I, name. Even in my notes, I said, the fuck kind of name is that? <laughs> yeah, it's a name that describes her perfectly. It reminds perfectly. me of a Klondike bar. I picture, like, you know the... What the, would you um, do for a Clarnell bar? Moving <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> <Hang> on. <laughs> when I think of Clarnell, I picture that uh, bitchy receptionist from Monsters, Inc. <laughs> yeah. Like... That's her. What do you want? <laughs> exactly. So growing up, it was a punishment for him to have to sleep in the cellar, right? So yeah. the trap door to the cellar was under the dining room table. So she would send him, They would, she would drag the table off the trap door, open it, send him down into the cellar, slam the door, and pull the table back over the door to the cellar. And they, the family would sit there and eat dinner right above him. How, like, I just, I don't know, man. I, I'm i not a parent right now. Maybe one day, I maybe not, who knows. But at the same time, like, I I feel like I would be a far better parent never parenting yeah. anything or anyone than this bitch. Of course. That is not the way that you, that, regardless. That's no, just not agreed. the way that you parent a child at all. I, if I found out someone treated their dog like that, I'd never speak to them. Oh, again. without a doubt, that's that's just that's just as bad. Agreed. Yeah, it's let alone a fucking child. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like she's a piece of garbage. Oh, like we can tremendously. Like you know, all reverence to the victims, whatever. But Ed Kemper's mom was a fucking piece of shit. She was awful. That's what I'm awful, saying. Awful, it's a awful. wonder he turned out the way he did. <laughs> yeah, and again, not justifying it, but yeah. Um, but by 12 years old, he was made to sleep locked in the cellar every night, regardless right. of whether yeah. he was in trouble or not. That's just where he was expected to sleep. Around this same time, he killed his first family cat. He said, quote, to make it mine. I mean, he yeah. had become why not? Yeah. He had become convinced that the cat had started preferring the company of his older sister. So what he did was bury the cat alive. He waited for it to die and then dug it up cut off the head and mounted it on a stake in his bedroom man that's like some game of thrones shit what they did with yeah. Ned stark's head yeah exactly like a warning to all the oh. other cats but the thing about it is <laughs> his relationship with his sisters was never bad no not really i mean they even at like after the fact and i know we're skipping ahead like talked about him as he was he he was a normal person that did bad things yeah like they yeah. still loved him and saw him as a, as a person. Yeah, but this this cat thing is a big moment because it's the first time he gets caught doing something like this and talks his way out of it. So like uses his that's, charisma yeah, to get out of something. That's kind of bad. Yeah, and which becomes a major theme for him. You know, like he, dude, 
I'll say he gives like if Ricky from Trailer Park Boys was a fucking serial killer. This is it. like he the way he everything. Yes, the way he gets out of shit with cops is yeah. fucking wild, dude. <laughs> like the number of times during this when I'll say he got pulled over with a corpse in his car oh, yeah. or something like that, and he just drives away scot free. I mean, as we like, talk about later on when he thinks that they're on to him. Yeah. But I, I'll save that for then, but we'll have a discussion there for sure. Yeah. So one of his favorite childhood games was called Gas Chamber and, that he played with his sisters. <laughs> I, so I, I don't know this part. So what kind of game yeah. is Gas Chamber? So his sister would tie him to a chair and they would, she would throw an invisible switch. Like okay. flip the switch, and then Ed would fall over on the floor and pretend to shake and convulse and die of gas poisoning. That was one of his favorite childhood games. You know, growing up, I don't think I've ever played a game like that. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> Obviously, with reason. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty wild, dude. Again, please do not take our laughter as yeah, you know, no. anything negative. We have to laugh at the dark stuff. I mean, yeah, man. Like, that, it's just so twisted. Like, yeah. I, I couldn't imagine playing a game like that as a child. No, even thinking about it. Right, exactly. Yeah, we may, we may have played, like, Cops and Robbers as a kid with, like, yeah. fake toy guns and boom, you're dead. You know, yeah. but, like, stuff like that? No. No. That's, that's some dark shit. Right. That's, that's super dark. Um, at 13, he runs away from home. Because he's living in Helena, Montana. Um, right. He runs away from home. Goes to live with his yeah. dad. Yes. So the problem is, because his dad's living in Van Nuys in L.A., um, and his dad has remarried, and his new wife wanted nothing to do with Ed. At all. She just, like, she was like, the, there, there's this giant bumbling weirdo, well, like, knocking shit over in my house. They and, also had... She had a kid. Yeah, yeah, she had a son. So, of course, didn't want the son to fall, you know, like, second best or whatever. Yeah. As any shitty stepmother is going to do. Yeah, it's true. Um, But she had had the father send him away because, quote, he gave her migraines. So, they sent him back home. Like... I don't know, like, I feel terrible, and and no, like, any, like, serial killer, stuff like that, normally there is a childhood. Yeah. And there's, like, a very negative childhood, and I always feel terrible, like, being the empath that I am, you know? Yeah. I feel very bad for them as children, having to endure all this shit, like... Same here. And this will be a running theme as we cover more serial killers. Oh, without a yeah. It's... It's okay to feel bad for them as and what they go through as children and still despise them for what oh, they do as yeah, adults. I mean, obviously you know what I mean? You do some bad shit, you're going to do bad shit. There's no way around it. Yeah. But we're talking cause and effect here. And right now we're in the cause section. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. this is shit that he went through that just, no child should ever it, have to go through. It's terrible. It's terrible. Yeah. It is. So they send him back home. And in retaliation for being sent home, he kills another house cat, another pet cat. This time, he cuts off the top of its head to expose its brain, and he hides it in the closet until it gets found because it smells terrible. Like, it starts to stink, and the mom finds it. Clarnell finds this cat. This is like some Jeffrey Dahmer shit, which that's even later, actually, so yeah. Right. Yeah, so ultimately, she sends 
Ed to live with his paternal grandparents. So this is the dad's parents. And they live in, what is it, North Fork? It's like by the Sierra Nevadas. Yeah, it's somewhere around there. I can't remember specifically. Um, And his grandparents were like hunters and outdoors people. Yeah, I was going to say his grandpa taught him to hunt and all that other stuff. And, you know, like properly hunt and everything. Yeah, they gave him a gun. They enrolled enrolled him in the Boy Scouts, like, which the Boy Scouts taught him a lot of the skills he would later use to get away with a lot of murders. Of course. So <laughs> learned so like what taught you're him how is to don't put your children through. Yeah, no, I, I don't. I, I wouldn't say no. Like Boy I mean, Scouts is a terrible organization, right? It, it is. <laughs> I know. So is Girl Scouts. Really? They're they're all very very bad in their own right. But at the same time. I feel like they teach very valuable lessons to an extent. I, I'll be honest. I put my sons in Boy Scouts for a month. It was a month. Was a four meetings was all I could take of sitting there watching them, like train my son how to be in the military. I mean, yeah, they're literally just. Um, it's just pre JORTC. Yeah, I mean, That's, they're grooming yeah. them in a sense, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's. Yeah, I, I'm not a fan. But again, when it comes to outdoor survival, I think it's there's yeah. nothing better. Yeah. So they eventually realized that he's killing random animals around the property for no reason, and they started taking the guns away from him. Like, they started... Because um, they bought him pistols and rifles and shotguns right. and all that stuff when he moved in, but they start taking them away because he's just, like, senselessly killing everything on the property. I mean, yeah, you have to teach what's right and what's what's you know what's wrong in that case yeah see and ed later talked about how much his grandmother immediately reminded him of his mother which makes a, a I mean, it makes a lot yeah, of sense that does that does for one thing a lot of men marry their moms that's true. you know what i mean mm-hmm. so it makes sense why ed jr his dad would end up with clarnell like, if he was raised by you know what i mean freaking clarnell man <laughs> And also, apparently, the grandmother and Clarnell never got along. And Ed was like, it's because they were exactly like, alike. Right, yeah. You get, <laughs> yeah. You get like, shoved, shoved into a close proximity with somebody that's literally you. Yep. You're probably not going to get along. Or you're going to get along famously. And most people that go are... go one of two ways. I think that's a huge tell. If, like, if someone can get along with someone that they have a, a ton in common with... Yeah. I think that's, like, a a nice leveled well-adjusted person a thousand percent but if you're someone who can't sit with yourself who can't deal with being alone there's with some, yourself something wrong yeah like yeah that's a sign that you got some shit you're not dealing with yeah, just a little bit yeah so august 1963 at 15 years old he kills his grandparents so he shoots his grandmother in the back of the head at the kitchen table right he shoots her two more times in the chest, and then he stabs her three times in the back. Right. Like, he ends up, he starts to go into a bit of a berserk. I mean, yeah, on, it's, it, on that rage grandma. finally comes out. Yeah. And then as he's as he finishes stabbing her, the, he kind of gets shaken out of the berserk because the grandfather pulls into the driveway. Right. So he grabs his gun, and he says he shoots the grandfather to save him from finding his wife dead. Yes, that was that was going to be that that was going to say that was the thing. It's it's almost like and and several of the things I watched and read was that he didn't want his grandpa to have to endure life without the grandma. Yeah. <laughs> it's 
Is that, that's it's like a distancing thing. Yeah. It's like he he tries to make himself like the hero of the story, right? He does this a lot. Yeah, like it becomes a theme. Like there's there's a caveat we probably should like a a note that we probably should have made at the top, which is most of the information we have about Ed's life comes straight from Ed. Right. Yeah. So that you have to take some of the stuff with a grain of salt, right? Like he's gonna bend some things to. To suit his purposes. But I feel like he's he's been very open in every interview, yeah. every, like... Yeah, most people agree with that. Yeah. He's been yeah. very, just like, this is matter-of-factly. Yeah. There we go. That's yeah. the best word for it. There's a thing, though. There's a weird thing about him. If you've watched a lot of, like, serial killer interviews, there's there's usually a lot of contemplation. They'll ask a question, and they they'll sit there for sometimes an uncomfortable length of time just kind of considering their answer of course yeah ed kemper is not like this at all i mean you ask him a question and he has it for you i was gonna say he everything has I watched, it ready he's yeah yeah he he's right knows there his answers he's yeah. it's almost like he's given this so much thought yeah. that he knows exactly what he wants to say well there's actually there's one interview where he starts to answer a question and the guy kind of steps on him he's like he interrupts him and he's like wait wait you're going to ruin the bit. That's what he says. He actually says you're going to okay. ruin the bit. So it's like he has all these stories like fine-tuned. Yeah. Like he loves telling them. I mean, maybe like, that's like maybe a fucking he's just bit like a on the terrific Tonight Show. storyteller. Yeah. I mean, what other time like what other what else? I mean, granted, I know he does other stuff while he's in prison, but yeah. He has all this time to think about these things, too. Yeah, absolutely. And he loves talking, and he knows people know he loves talking, so people just keep coming back for more interviews. He knows oh, he's yeah. going to have more opportunities to share, and yeah. Um, he became like a, a really, he was one of the first serial killers that the behavioral analysis unit for the FBI got to spend time with and interview and study. And he like became one of the primary, one of the primary, um, subjects when they were developing the whole concept of profiling and like yeah it's if you've ever watched the show mind hunter right um which is about yeah. that those beginning stages of the bau at the fbi like he's one of the main characters in the show because they they become obsessed with him they just get they just keep going back and talking more and more with him and he even like helped you know sort of like uh hannibal lecter in in um, Silence, of the Lambs. Silence of the Lambs. Yep. Yeah. Um, he helped them catch a few, like helped them, t- like talked through the cases with them and stuff and like helped them solve some of them. So, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, he, lo- he fucking loves talking, dude. Loves it. Um, it so has, after he kills. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, it has to make you wonder, like, some of these people do. It, I mean, granted, I know a lot of this stems from, obviously, the mommy problems, right? The trauma. Right, exactly. But, like, you also wonder, like, he loves to talk. He loves to put on a show. And you think, like, maybe at the end, did he want to be caught because he wanted to have this sort of, like, limelight, right? Yeah. 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 No, that definitely could have been part of his motivation. Yeah, random thought. Yeah. Um, So after he kills his grandfather, he calls his mom. Because of fucking course he does. He's like, hey, mom, I just killed grandma and grandpa. Surprise! So what should I do? 
and she's like, call the police. She doesn't even call the police. She right. tells and him to call that, the police. Imagine that conversation. Yeah. Well, I saw this coming. Right. Um, Ed, uh, uh, Big Ed is what they often refer to him as. Yeah. Big Ed or Guy as the sisters refer to him as. Guy. Yeah. Uh, maybe call the police. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know what to say. You know what really blows my mind about this, though? What's that? Even after he calls her and admits that he's just murdered his grandparents, she's still confident in her control of him enough to where she thinks she can just tell him to call the police and he will. Right. I mean... That's wild. She she had a, she had a huge effect over him as, as a person yes. and everything he did. Yeah. Even as an adult the whole time. Yeah. The whole time. A had it. A huge grip on him. Mm-hmm. Um, so he does. He hangs up with the mom. He calls the police, and he sits fucking crisscross applesauce beside his grandfather's corpse in the driveway, <laughs> and waits for the police to pull up. Like <laughs> that's so wild. I mean, yeah. I most people, and I would think most people, at least. I mean, even you know, you can you committed a double homicide in this case. Yep. You're probably gonna get out, or at least like maybe like get away from your victims or something. Sure, but no, he's he's there. He's no, ready he to feels go. nothing. Right, this dude feels nothing. 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 That's so crazy. He, I mean, okay, so the court psychologists diagnose him with paranoid schizophrenia, and they send him to a Tascadero State Hospital, and he's 15. Right. Okay, 16 when he gets to the hospital. 15 when he kills them, 16 when he arrives at the hospital. And the psychiatrists and social workers there at the hospital completely vehemently disagree with the diagnosis. They're like, this guy shows no signs of schizophrenia. None. He knows exactly what he's doing. This guy is a stone-cold sociopath. He doesn't feel a fucking thing. Nothing. I mean, he is emotionless. Mm -hmm. Like... But he's also completely like broken at this point. The prime person in this case, like he's he's done everything that's been asked of him. He's taken his medicine. He's doing all this stuff. Like he becomes like this person that is almost like this like prime person that he is better. Yeah, one hundred percent. He is a better person because yeah, of all he this. turns the. I mean, he turns the charisma on and lays a serious con on the people that work at this hospital. But maybe like, it wasn't just a con. That's my I thing. Don't, I don't know, man. When he's forced to move back, which now we're moving into that, the court rules him back into the custody of his mother. But he's begging for it. He's begging, or begging against it, rather. Yeah, so are his psychiatrists. Right, exactly. Like, yeah. I, I, but just, I don't know, man. It's, there's some shit that goes on in this hospital that teaches him how to, like... Before we get out of the hospital. Yeah. All right. Let's do it. Yeah. So he becomes friends with one of the chief psychiatrists, like straight up pals Mm. with them. And you have to like, you have to remember that back in the, in the seventies, in the sixties and seventies, they are super overworked in these psychiatric hospitals. Like we're talking hundreds of, of dangerous patients and 10 psychiatrists on staff. Right. That's when like manic depressive order wasn't known as bipolar anything like that. Right. Yeah. Yep. So they're massively overworked. So he starts doing tasks for them. He gains access to files. This is a huge thing. 
Yeah. So he he gets access to files of rapists and murderers, and he uses them not only to learn how to be a better criminal, right? He uses them this access as masturbation material, for sure, on a regular basis. The I mean, he has like access to murder scene photographs, yeah. all of it, like the whole files, and he learned. Mostly, he learned what they were looking for when they're assessing patients. So, like, he figured out this is this is everything they want to see right. in order to to call me, you know, sane and ready for release. So he figures out how to play that role and get out. Yeah, no, that's it's that's fair for sure. Only five years later, when he's twenty-one, he gets out. So he murders his grandparents, and five years later, he's free, which is wild. It's fucking I mean, at crazy. that point, he's no longer because he goes in as a minor. He's, yeah, as a minor, right? He's tried as a minor and everything, and that's why he goes yep. to this mental facility. Yeah, um, comes out and he's squeaky clean at that point, right? So every yeah, they loved him. What everybody thinks, exactly. Yeah, they they. Yep. He was the prime like person to go through this, and everybody thought that everything was great. Yeah, I mean, this is. This is literally where he learns how to create that gentle giant persona. Like, and he figures out that it works, yeah. that he's good at it. And psychiatrists, like you mentioned, recommend anything but releasing him to his mother's yeah. custody. And they release him to the custody of his mother. Of course they do. Right off the bat. So he and his mom moved to Santa Cruz, which is, you know, this will be the the stage where he, you know, where he puts where on his she performance. Starts working for the university and yep. all like his stint of his eight more murders continue. Yep. Yep. So as his mom gets a job working at UCSC, Kemper gets a job working with the California State Highway Department. So. Well, before that, he also he wanted to become a policeman. Oh, yeah. And yeah. he was too tall. Was the problem? Yeah. Six yeah, foot he was nine. Too big. He was too tall. And I mean, so, he wanted to be a fucking motorcycle cop. I mean, yeah, but he he, he wanted nine. a job as a policeman. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> I don't know if that's good or if that's bad. Maybe <laughs> it's like big. that corrupt person that turns good, you know, and that's what he was looking for. I, who knows? But he was too, he's too big of a guy. <laughs> I mean, he grew up after his dad moved out. He became obsessed with John Wayne. Right. Well, that was like. His big thing. His and first that turned actual, into sort of a love of law enforcement and all that. His first actual date was at 21, where mm-hmm. he took a girl to a John Wayne movie. Uh, what was it? Yeah. Took her, he, they went to a Denny's for dinner. Classy. And then to a John Wayne movie for, yeah, as their date. Like, that was his very first official date. Yeah. Yeah. And his mother ridiculed him for weeks afterward. Which is... Because she saw him as just a copy of his father. Right. Like, and she had terrible, nothing but terrible things to say about his father. She literally so, had his father's balls on a stick. Yeah, yeah. Like, and Absolutely. That's, that's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, anyhow. <laughs> yeah. Kemper ultimately gets a job with the California Highway Department. Right. And he moves out on his own into an apartment with a roommate. Right. That's a big thing. He has a roommate. Um, but Clarnell is still pestering him constantly, like calling all the time, dropping in unannounced. Like, she, he can't get rid of her. She wanted to maintain that 
grip she had on him. Or was she just trying to make sure he wasn't raping or killing anyone? All I she's mean, doing is I making it worse, though. It's yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the that's the thing, right? Is she the bad guy in this situation for driving him crazy, or was she honestly just trying to prevent him from? I feel like, like she was everything she was doing was making it absolutely worse. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. But um, when he when he fails to become a cop because he's gigantic, because he's an enormous freak. Um, that's mean. In, instead, he starts hanging out with cops. Right. <laughs> so that's the thing. Yeah, he starts uh, he starts hanging out at this cop bar called the Jury Room, and um, <clears throat> he sort of like wormed his way into this group of cop friends, sort of as like what does he call it? The like the um, like bumbling or the friendly nuisance. That's what he calls okay. it. That's the role he was trying to play, like because no one thinks twice about the friendly nuisance, right? right? And he's became friends with all of these guys. Yeah, he's getting the insight to all of these yep. types of cases, all of the you know everything that's going on at the time, and yep. he's building up not only the the fact that he became like this, you know, like you were saying, as he was in this mental facility, um, you know, finding out to be the best serial killer, but he's also becomes friends with cops. So he's yeah. finding out a way to get away with everything that he's doing. Yeah, and they I mean they just think of him as like a big goofy dude, right, like exactly. a cop groupie. Right? But this became crucial later because in the midst of his killing spree later, this group of cop buddies would openly discuss details of the case with him. Yeah. Like that's I mean just openly talking about like the traps they were trying to set, what methods they were using to try and catch him, like he had both sides of the of the situation. He had yeah. access to to both. It's basically Ed Kemper was playing Battleship against someone with their Battleship thing turned around. Right. I mean, like, he he had the perfect, literally, like the perfect setup to be yeah. uh, to be doing what he was doing. Yeah. Yeah. Also, in love with the idea of becoming a motorcycle cop, but failing. He, he just starts buying motorcycles. So he buys himself a motorcycle. He crashes it. He buys a second motorcycle and crashes it. In six months, he crashes two motorcycles. Good Lord. Um, it's almost like he's too big. I mean, they make, they make bigger bikes. Yeah, now. This is, this is true. <laughs> in the 70s, he's probably, yeah, right. he yeah. probably driving some like soft tail that's he's meant like for like, like a 180 like pound 750 dude. cc bike and he's yeah. just way too tall for it. <laughs> fucking 300 pounds <laughs> six nine that's a that's God. a big ass dude man i'm six there are two, pictures of him and yeah, i can't there are imagine pictures of, like, oh good lord there are pictures of him standing with staff from the prison and he like he like sticks his arms out like this and like to his sides and there's like and two the and a half more you. heads above them like between their heads and his arms like he's an enormous man wow so he crashes both of these motorcycles in six months the second one wasn't his fault he ends up getting a settlement and he uses that money to buy his 1969 bright yellow ford galaxy it's like canary yellow right yes yes the fucking ugliest oh my god And as you were telling the story i said i what was it um, I I'm trying to find my notes, but it was like, how sus can you get? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. 
of not good um, lord man just use your head yeah not a great car for you know no, being incognito no, not at all he should have went like straight camo and blended <laughs> in with the surroundings you'd never see it a big thing too is that he bought a coupe so it's a two-door it's in but it's also giant yes it is a big car but like it it turns off a lot of hitchhikers experienced hitchhikers often won't get in the back seat of a coupe because fair. you're trapped yeah. in the back seat yeah you know what that's i mean true. that's true yeah because you have to like push the seat forward to get into the back seat and then you're stuck back there until whoever's in the front seat will open the door and push the seat up um so then he starts with he starts picking up hitchhikers and he says initially it was in an attempt to get to know quote get to know some folks from the younger generation that and then it eventually turns into to get to find out about himself. Yeah. Like after yeah. shit starts to happen. Again, I'm skipping ahead, yeah, yeah. but I think that's important to mention there too. Yeah, for sure. Um it's it's telling though that he says that it was to get to know some folks from the younger generation. So at this point he's only twenty two. Right, yeah. And but you have to remember that he he missed the whole roaring part of the hippie movement, the late 60s. He was institutionalized. Yeah. He missed his whole he spent his whole teenage years hanging out with rapists and psychiatrists. Like middle-aged men. I mean, yeah, when you put it like that, that's Yeah. So he's like permanently disconnected from peers. Like he doesn't he doesn't connect to them at all, and mm. that just further increases his lack of social skills, right? Particularly with women. Yeah. With women his age, he has... I mean, he's spent his whole life hearing his mom tell him that you're not good enough for these girls. Stay away from them. They're, no woman will ever love you. Stuff like that. And it's wild because there are so many, like... Um, there's so much cognitive dissonance with Ed Kemper because he is wildly charismatic. Like, wildly. And not in that, like... Not in that Ted Bundy, like, car salesman charisma right, yeah. that leaves you feeling slimy afterwards. Like, he is genuinely personable. Like, he is great at talking to people. But when it came to women his age, he was, he called himself a bumble butt. <laughs> like, he could not talk to women his age at all. Yeah, I, he just felt inferior instantly I mean, because that's how he was trained to I feel. I get it. I get it. Exactly. Like, I mean again due to everything with his mother and the fact that she like I mean she she took away basically his whole childhood yeah of being able to grow up and being able to like be a part of these things because yep she was just a, such a terrible person to him I mean often growing up with sisters makes you pretty good at talking to women I mean yeah you know what I mean a lot of guys who grow up with nothing but sisters they learn you learn growing up how to talk to women right you know what i mean how to talk to your mom how to talk to your sisters that translates when mm -hmm. you enter the dating scene you know but like he was robbed of that completely exactly. growing up anytime he went anywhere near his sisters his mom was staring him down at the very least at the most dragging him off by his ear to put him under the fucking kitchen floor yeah you know what i mean like he wasn't he wasn't allowed to develop those skills I mean, a guy like a guy like Ed Kemper with his natural charisma, I, I think if he had been raised normally, he would have had no trouble with women. Oh, not at all. Yeah. Agreed. He would have been a killer. <laughs> Put 
Pun intended. And that's he would have been a killer on <laughs> yeah. the dating scene. And that's you know why I mean? talking to younger people, he doesn't have to feel as like you know as uh, as, as tight pressured. or or right or as pressured or whatever else. Yeah, I think the the setup of him picking up a hitchhiker it gave him like a sense of power like the ice was already broken yeah right like the situation is the situation you're sitting next to this girl now in the car and you're already you already have something to talk about right and i think that's that's how he for that's how he started yeah. doing it and that's a good way to look at it but it wasn't long before he starts rehearsing how to kill in these situations so what he would do and this is super interesting he would he would because he starts out picking up men and women right and then very quickly is like i'm only going to pick up women yeah but it, yeah so, at first i mean it's worth to note he was yeah. picking up both and that i mean that lasted yeah. for a period of time yeah for sure but he starts picking up only women and he starts questioning them about what they look for in a potential ride so again just like with the files in the psychiatric ward he's researching He's trying to build this character that he's going to need later. Yeah, I mean, right? Because if you if you have several people tell you, "Oh, I'm looking for this, this, and this," he can cater to that. Yeah, yeah, or manipulate Absolutely. the situation to appear that way. Right? Yeah, exactly. And he starts doing this thing that a lot of serial killers do, where he's slowly, step by step, getting closer to to killing. Right? So, like allowing himself a little more every time. So he starts fantasizing about it and working up to it. And he starts doing dry runs like while he's creating this gentle giant persona. And he starts practicing this trap, which I found fascinating. He talks about it in an interview. So he would he would say all of a sudden, "I think your door is open." And he would have a chapstick hidden in his palm. Yeah. Right? And he would reach across them and open their door and close it quickly and he'd drop the chapstick in behind the door handle so that would prevent the door from opening right like you'd go to open it and it'd bump up against the chapstick and you wouldn't be able to open the door and he ran this dry run dozens of times where he would you know he would do that and then he'd say like oh that door does that all the time and he'd go around and fix it and let them out yeah without killing them right he does that a bunch of I mean for a long he's picking up like half a dozen hitchhikers a day, just driving up and down the highway, picking up hitchhikers. And then he slowly started allowing himself to drive around. Like the next step was to drive with a gun under his seat, not using it, just having it there. there and right. then he, yeah. And then he slowly built a kill kit, like plastic bags and knives, a blanket, handcuffs, stuff like that in the trunk. Just like slowly getting there. He picked up over 150 female hitchhikers with the kill kit complete before he finally yeah attacked someone which i mean that's that's a lot of that's a lot of people yeah it's a lot of fantasy right exactly building up this this anticipation to get to that point yeah but yeah i mean he had to do his homework yeah it's man it's so crazy to think about it right like and it's this is like a fascinating part of his psyche to me so he like because he starts he starts gauging the hitchhikers like he starts deciding whether they're innocent what he calls some were innocent and some were haughty so like he creates this black and white good or bad like where he can judge them instantly yeah. whether they're a good girl or whether they're in his words a stuck up bitch right 
which is like classic incel shit. I mean, yeah. Like, that is 100% what it is. Mm-hmm. It's the same shit we hear from those, like, fucking losers to this day. And, like, okay, so he creates this nice guy persona from whole cloth. Like, just completely creates it. And it's fake, right? It's not real. But he starts telling himself this incel shit. Like, the, you know, the classic, like, oh, women just want assholes. They, they'd never go for a nice guy like me, right? Like, nice guy finish last, stupid shit. Yeah. But, like, the sociopathy allows him to completely disconnect from the fact that that gentle, giant, nice guy personality isn't real. Like, he doesn't recognize the fact that that's created. Mm -hmm. So it eventually becomes the basis for him to explain his stand on, like... So when he... Later, when he talks about two versions of himself, when he's on the stand when he's trying to sell the insanity plea. Right. That's the basis of it. He he literally creates it and then being a sociopath, he doesn't he's able to compartmentalize the creation of the personality and just recognize that it's real, which is bizarre. It's so fucking weird. Like that's one of the most fascinating things about him to me. It just I No, I It's so I weird agree. to step inside a mind like yeah, that. Yeah, that's so fractured. And it's, it's really, it's, it is definitely, it's, it's weird to put it into like the mind space and trying to get into the head of that thought process. Right. Yeah. And it, I mean, it seems so far, far from what you and I would think like a normal day to day basis or in yeah, any situation, normal people or, experience, right. In, in that situation. Yeah. You know, to think like someone else can literally cater this down to the second this person gets into the car versus everything that happens afterwards and it's all played out like almost you know down to the second yeah it's crazy yeah that's that's just it's almost impossible but it's clearly not yeah yeah well you have to be i think completely fucked to be able to to live like that i mean i'd say that's an understatement for sure yeah, like, I mean, he talks about these moments where he's, like, walking around with someone's head in a bag. Right. Yeah. And he's, like, passing, like, happy couples that sit in he They're like, hello. And he's like, hello. And just walks by them. And he's like, it would dawn yeah. on me in those moments the difference between my reality and theirs. Like, that I'm standing here with a leather bag with someone's head in it. Right. And they're on their way out to dinner on a date. That I that part of me would love to go to. That I'd love to go out to dinner with a with a young woman. Mm-hmm. But my reality is that I'm standing here on the steps with a young woman's head in a leather bag. I mean, he even, and he's like, some people crack at that point, and I somehow manage not to. Right. Again, this weird backwards bragging that he does in the interviews. He even had a head in his trunk when he went to like a therapy session. Yes. Yeah, we'll we'll for sure get to that. I mean, yeah, it's like, fucking how, wild. Uh, yeah, yeah. So let's let's get to the victims. All right. Okay. So the actual killings. Just as like a precursor, real quick. During this eleventh month, eleven month murder spree from May of seventy two to April of seventy three, Kemper killed five college students, one high school student, his mother, and his mother's best friend. Right. Um. He has stated in interviews that he often searched for victims after having arguments with his mother and that she refused to introduce him to women, attending the university university where she worked, 
He recalled, quote, she would say, you're just like your father. You don't deserve to get to know them. So like he would fight with his mom and then go out looking for someone to kill. I mean, yeah. Like immediately that's, that's taking out that aggression. Exactly. Yeah. Taking it out, coping with it. Yeah. Now you have to remember that he's been rehearsing for months. Like on top of the stuff with the chapstick and all the dry runs with, with, um, hitchhikers, he used to sit in his car in front of his mom's house for hours, just practicing, pulling the gun out from under his leg, like hours and hours of just practicing that motion. Wow. And just playing it out in his head, just sitting there fantasizing about actually Mm -hmm. doing it. Right. So finally on May 7th, 1972, he's, uh, Kemper's driving to Berkeley and he picks up two 18-year-old women hitchhiking from Fresno from Fresno State University. He picks up Marianne Pesky and Anita Lucessa. Right. Um, and he agrees to take them to Stanford. So he describes Mary as haughty and stuck up. So like she's the one that failed the mm-hmm. failed the the Kemper test. Right? So and originally she didn't want to get in the car. She was like a more experienced hitchhiker than uh, Lucessa was and one of her rules was to never get in a, in the backseat of a coupe like the, the I mean, two yeah, only smart. two doors would trap her in the backseat right but her friend talks her into it into taking the ride yeah um, but this is where he really develops the idea that he'll be triggered by women that he relates to as like quote stuck up little bitches this is what he calls them um, the kind of woman that his mother always said was too good for him yeah. Right. Like that's I that's mean, how he thinks about the way it. that he perceives and sees those women. Yeah. I mean, he he just decides in an instant in a lot of cases. Right. Like what kind of woman it is. But again, so, the mom still got grips on him, so Yeah. Always. So this is where we're going to we're going to really get into it. So after driving for an hour, he managed to reach a secluded wooded area near Alameda. And he knew a lot of these back roads because of the work he did on the highway department, right? Like, yeah, man, there he, were times he would just drive and drive and drive for hours. Yep, literally. He, I mean, he literally knew these. And these like Southern California roads are wildly confusing, like crazy, like curvy. They go up in the mountains, back down. Oh, yeah, like sure. they're and he knows them like the back of his fucking hand. Like, I know playing GTA. I mean, yeah. I've, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm familiar. And that's as close as I've ever been to driving in California. <laughs> so I'm right there with you. But without alerting his passengers that he had changed directions, he manages to get to the secluded spot without the women noticing. Right. Really that he had changed directions or anything. Um, once he pulls up there, he pulls out the 22 caliber. Like he's rehearsed a hundred times. Um, he handcuffs Pesky in the back seat and he drags Lucessa out of the car and throws her in the trunk right. and slams yeah. the trunk. Right. And this is another one, just like the grandfather where he says he does this so that Lucessa, who hasn't failed the test, the Kemper test, he thinks of her as a nice girl. He doesn't want her to see what he's going to do to her friend, which is another, God, he's such a piece of shit. I mean, like, it's yeah. They're just these like conniving ways to make himself feel, like he thinks that makes him a better oh, person. It makes him feel better about the situation. Yeah. It's yeah. Like if I it's do it this so way, I, I won't come off as this 
terrible piece of shit. Like I'm at least yeah. like considering their feelings yeah. to an extent. Right. I'm a considerate murderer and rapist. <laughs> um, so he puts a plastic bag over Pesky's head and he ties a bathrobe around her neck and tries to strangle her like that. Um, the belt snaps and Pesky is fighting the whole time. She bites a hole through the bag over her head. Um, so since that wasn't working, he pulls out a knife and he stabs her to death. Ultimately, he like slits her throat ear to ear. He talks about in the yeah. in the interview that like this is where I learned the the meaning of ear to ear. Um, he reflected in an interview that he expected it to go like in the movies, where like you just stab. He would just stab her and she would fall down dead. And he realized in that moment that people in his words, slowly leak to death when they're stabbed. (laughs) Wow. So, like, yeah. And he... There's another weird... Another little thing where it's like he's trying to look better, right? So there's a moment where when he's, like, wrestling with her, trying to handcuff her in the first place in the back seat, he, he says he brushed the back of his hand against her breasts, and it embarrassed him. He said... In the moment, he said, whoops, I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah. That, like, just touching her breast embarrassed him, even though he murdered her a couple minutes later. Right. Like, yeah. A little too late there, bud. Right. So after after killing her, he goes back to Luchessa in the trunk. And when he opens it, she asks what happened to her friend. And he says that she smarted off to him and he may have broken her nose, that she needed to come and help her. Like, he can't even say in the moment. Right. That he's murdering these girls, he can't even admit the bad things he's doing. Yeah, is he? Again, he's going to come off as that. Yeah, person, right? And he doesn't want to come off that way in this case. Yeah. So as soon as she gets out of the trunk, he pulls out this fucking giant skinning knife that he, in the dorkiest move ever, has nicknamed his skinning knife the General. That's what he calls his knife. Like the that shitty insurance company. The general? Yeah, probably. <laughs> so he pulls out this giant knife. He stabs her in the throat, in the eyes, in the heart, and in the forearm. This is like an all-out fight. She's yeah. like fighting him the whole time. Um, and he says that she's wearing thick overalls. So it's hard to get the knife to actually penetrate like through the, through the overalls. Yeah. And he said the first time he hits her with the knife, he did it so hard that it Oh, it threw her almost on top of the car. Like it lifted her up off the ground Damn. and almost on top of the car. Yeah, it's insanely brutal. So he puts both the women's bodies in the trunk and immediately realized that he couldn't find his keys. Okay, as soon as he closes the trunk, he can't find his keys. And he convinces himself that he's locked them in the trunk. Right. He's like banging on the trunk, pulling on it, trying to like pop the trunk open. And he panics and he considers just running away <laughs> and just leaving the fucking car there. And as he turns to run away, the pistol that he's had tucked in his sweatpants falls down the leg of his pants and trips him and he falls down. And he completely forgot that he had the gun the entire yeah. time. Like, I mean, that would have made that job a lot easier had he remembered, I'm sure. Yeah. So when he realizes like I didn't even remember that I had the gun he realizes that his head is scrambled so he like takes a minute he sits down breathes calms himself down and then he checks every pocket and finds his keys Mm. in a pocket 
He's just so fucking hyped after, like, finally, finally doing the thing he's been fantasizing about for probably years. Yeah. That, like, his adrenaline's going and he it's can't. That first time, you know? right. Yeah. Um, so he returns to his apartment, his apartment, and on the way home, he's stopped by a police officer, like we mentioned before, this time for a broken taillight. But yeah. he's so great at talking to cops. It is because he's been hanging out with them for a long time now. And he's so he's gotten so good at talking to cops. The cop, of course, doesn't realize that there are corpses in the trunk and lets him go. Gives him a warning. Get that taillight fixed. Yeah. And he drives home to his apartment. The roommate isn't home. So he takes the bodies into the apartment where he photographs them. Then he has sex with the corpses before dismembering them. He then put the body parts into plastic bags, which he later abandoned near Loma Prieta Mountain. So um, say, didn't he spread them out though? Yes, he did, and he got he got better about spreading them out later. The later, of course, you know, with yeah. each kill, he did it more and more. But um, before disposing of Pesky and Lucessa's heads um, in a ravine, he so there's a term that I had to learn doing this. Which is called Irumashio. All right. I, yes. Yeah. Right. What does that yeah. mean? I don't even know what that means. Uh, it basically means face fucking. Ah. Okay. To put it plainly. So that's used, that term I had never heard of before, but it's used frequently when people are writing about this case because it's one of Ed Kemper's favorite things to do. I mean, yeah. Which is after he cuts the heads off, he fucks them. Mm-hmm. Like, so yeah, he does that before throwing the heads off the mountain this is a lot yeah it's a lot jesus you know i've been researching this for like the last week week and a half but saying it all out loud i mean this is is very first after the grandparents yeah we're gonna have to figure out a way to speed this up (laughs) yeah yeah so he buried body parts in various locations um in august of that year they found pesky's skull um and that's it they found the skull, and then they they did like an extensive search around it, yeah. but it failed to turn up anything else, and they never found any remains from mm-hmm. Luchessa. Um, moving on, Ico Ku. Yeah, so this one fucked with me a that lot. That was the fifteen year old, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, this is the high school student mm-hmm. on September fourteenth, nineteen seventy two, needing a ride to ballet class. Yeah, she missed her bus to a ballet class in San Francisco, so she like writes San Francisco on a sign and just hits the highway. Yeah, um, man, I, it was so common back then. That's to me in, it's in just this crazy. Era. I know. Like in granted, I've known people that have hitchhiked across the country. Same, my dad did. Yeah, now nowadays at least that's just wild and completely yeah, like that's, that's insane. That's not normal. Yeah. I have a 15-year-old son, and there's no fucking way he would ever hitchhike. Right. Like, and he's the most reckless kid I have. There's that's, no way. That's crazy. There's no way he would ever do that. But it was so common back then, and it was, like, it's just how a lot of people got around. It was completely normal. Um, I don't know. It's, this, this one messed with me a lot, I'll be honest. I, there are, like... There's like a, a 15 year old girl I know who looks a lot like Aiko Ku. This person, yeah, yes. So like, it was this one was tough. I mean, yeah, to get through. Of course, that's gonna make it make it a lot harder to because I mean a lot of that's gonna almost hit home, you know, to to yeah. an extent, right? 
yeah it made it feel very real yeah like it's it's easy to forget when you're you know researching even horrendous events like this that happened you know 50 years ago yeah it's easy to sort of become detached from it like it's almost like they're living in another world you know what i mean for Um, sure but like as soon as i saw her picture i was like fuck like that's like someone's fifteen-year-old daughter. I mean, if it, all you know what I mean? all of these are. That's, I know that's someone's I know. child. Yeah, I mean, you look at that in every single day, everything that happens. Yeah, that's someone's loved one. Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah, it's bad. Yeah. Um. So he picks her up, right? This time he pulls the gun while he's driving. Okay. He doesn't even wait until he arrives at the remote location. He gives her this story that he's planning to kill himself and that he wants someone to watch. But he tells her that if she screams, he'll kill her too. Right? So it keeps her quiet. At one point during this, so they arrive, he gets out of the car, and he locks himself out of the car. That's smart. The, the gun is laying on the seat, and he locks himself out of the car. And this poor little girl is so panicked and so afraid of him, she lets him back in. Because he's just banging on the window and screaming, let me in. And she just, you know... And this guy's a fucking monster. You know what I mean? Like, I hope... And she panics and she's terrified. I hope any of you listeners, regardless of your age, or if you have children, and they're ever put into a similar situation, please let them know that it is okay to take that gun and shoot this person, first of all. And take right. that car and drive to the nearest police station. Yes, absolutely. Get as absolutely far as you can, it, even if you need to call home, parents, whatever. Like, yeah. please make sure that you know what to do in that situation. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's fucking tragic. Yeah. It's so tragic that, like, the fact that, that, she that opportunity was there. Exactly. She yeah. could have literally taken that gun, boom, he would have been done. Or just jumped in the or, driver's seat yeah, and taken exactly. off. I mean, you know, yeah. yeah to me, I, I I see that like taking it. You got to double tap, yeah. right? Sure. <laughs> I mean, it's the, the whole zombie land thing. I, I'm always yeah. like, I watch movies and they're like, the killer is out on the loose. And they like smack him and he's like down for the count for a minute. Well, right. you got to double tap. Always double tap. <laughs> yeah, always. <sighs> Anyhow. Yeah, no, uh, that's that's terrible. Yeah. So he gets back in the car. He drives her to a place in the mountains and um, chokes her until she's unconscious. So first he tried to suffocate her by shoving his fingers in her nostrils, which is a very strange method. But I mean, that's a way to get enough, rid of some bugs. <laughs> oddly enough, that did not work. <laughs> oddly enough. Um, yeah. So instead, he lays her on the ground outside the car and he chokes her to death with her own scarf while raping her. It's insanely intense. I mean, yeah. Um, the place where he murdered her was less than a two-minute drive away from one of the primary case investigators' houses. Really? Yeah. That close? Yep. Wow. That close. Two minutes away. I didn't know that. Um, so he packs the body in the trunk of his car, and he goes to a nearby bar to have a few drinks before returning to his apartment. Um... He later confessed that after exiting the bar, he opened the trunk of his car in the parking lot, quote, admiring my catch like a fisherman. Yep. <clears throat> I don't have a whole lot to say about that. 
Are you slowly getting less sympathy for him? I mean, I only had sympathy <laughs> for the way he was raised, not the bullshit that he's doing here. Yeah. Like, this dude good, is trash. Good. Yeah, absolutely. Street trash. Back at his apartment, he cut off her head and hands before having sexual intercourse with the corpse, and then dismembered and disposed of the remains the same way he did the last two. Um, he kept her head in a leather bag in the passenger seat of his car. This was the head that was in the leather bag in the passenger seat while he attended his court-mandated psychiatry appointments. Which, that to me is... It's so convenient and so close. But uh-huh. yeah, he's like riding, he's like flirting with that line of like, I could yep. get caught, but no, I'm going to play with this. Yep. And here's the kicker for this. Both appointments that day resulted in glowing reviews from the doctors that led to the sealing, the permanent sealing of his juvenile record. And yep. he was officially off the hook only eight years after murdering his grandparents. Yeah. That's what's crazier about it. Yeah. As he goes in, he's basically let off the hook. 100%. Yep. If you, like, if you go and read those reports, it's fucking crazy. It's, they're talking about how, like, he's a, he's like a shining example of the kind of work that the institutions can do. And that he's like, they can't imagine, if they didn't know the backstory, they couldn't imagine that anything was wrong with him and that he could ever be a danger to anyone. Yeah. Yeah, no, to me... Meanwhile, he has this 15-year-old girl's head in his car. Yeah. That that was one of the wildest things, is, I mean, it's just, it it's, it's so, it, it's such, like, a thing where it is, he is so close to being caught, but he, like, is so confident. Yeah. And he, again, that charismatic, like, personality of his, he knows yep. that he's going to be okay. Yeah, he can just turn it on. Like, what kind of shit is that? It's wild. Extremely. <laughs> it's crazy, dude. It's oh, he did it he had it down to a to a system. Like yeah. he he could manipulate just about anybody. There like another thing I wanted to note, when when Aikoku's um when she went missing, when Aikoku went missing, her mother called the police to report the disappearance and put up hundreds of flyers all over Santa Cruz asking for information and she didn't receive a single response regarding her daughter she didn't even get a call back from the police wow until years later when he well until when he um told about the the rest when of the victims. He, yeah right when he admitted doing it and this i think this is an example of you know what a lot of people refer to as the less dead right she was i mean aiko was a minority she was I believe Japanese. Yeah. Um, yeah, I believe. And, I believe so. And she just didn't get the same attention that all these like young white women right. did, especially in the early seventies, right? Now, wasn't it around this time that the school started like putting putting out these things and like you know saying like don't get in cars with strangers? Like it became like this big this big thing that the school was yeah. very much against. That's actually after the next murder. Is it after the next one? Okay. All right, let's yeah, talk about the next yeah. one. We'll talk about that. Okay. So, I couldn't remember the specific timeline in that. Yeah. So in the week after Iko dies, he, in a shocking turn of events, Ed Kemper decides to move back in with his mother. So moves out of his apartment, back in with his mom. And this is where he says the rest of these murders all happened immediately after a big after her. argument with his mom. Right. Yeah. So... 
On January 7th, 1973, Kemper, who, like I said, had moved back in with his mother, he's driving around Cabrillo College. And he had lived there for um, a couple months. His last victims oh, were yeah. in September, right? Of 72? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So in this in this time span, he buys a new 22 caliber pistol, and he says he loves it. And he says, like, something like, I just went bananas with that new 22. I just loved it so much. And how it takes a while to get used to the way he talks about. I was gonna say, how things. can a person just say like th- I don't know, man? Sociopathy, Ryan. I'm, yeah, I, his brain doesn't work the way ours does. I yeah, I just to, to be able to be like, yeah, man, I loved it. I just had to go nuts with it. It was so fun. Yeah, like it's just so flippant. That to, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. All right. So he picks up eighteen-year-old uh, Cynthia or Cindy Shaw. Right. He uh, drives to a wooded area, and he shoots her with the twenty-two caliber pistol that he enjoys so much. Um, he places her body in the trunk of the car, and he drives back to his mom's house, where he keeps the body hidden in a closet in his room overnight. Right. So the mom arrived home right as he's stuffing her body in the closet. Right, Clarnell comes in, and he talks a lot like we, like we discussed earlier, this cognitive dissonance that he experiences when he's switching back and forth between, you know, like Killer Ed and Gentle Giant, right? Right, Big Ed. Yeah, this is a huge example of this this moment because he talks about being able to switch back to normal and stand in his bedroom door and have just a normal conversation with his mom moments after stuffing a woman's corpse into his closet. It's like literally moments. Yeah. Like any normal person in that situation, I don't feel you'd be able to just nonchalantly yeah. or have like just to carry on just a normal conversation. Yeah. Like it's so close. He says that he, he's actually startled by her coming down the hall because she must have slammed the front door the same time he slammed the closet door. So he didn't hear her come through the door. Like, yeah, it's that close. And he can just turn it off and turn on the the normal. Yeah, that's crazy. When his mom leaves for work the next morning, he has sex, of course. He, of course, has sex with um, Shaul's head. And he, he uh, removes the bullet from the skull. He always does that with, with the victims that he shoots. Um, you know, because he hangs out with cops all the time, and he knows that you know, yeah, the bullets can. He also says he watches a lot of TV. That he learned a lot of this from watching cop shows on TV. Okay. You know, I don't know um, all the types of cop shows that were in the seventies, but right, there were a couple, a couple that were like invest that actually showed investigation okay. and stuff. But it wasn't the you know the Not huge like Dick now, Wolf yeah. market that it is now. Um. But yeah, he he's he always removes the bullet, um, and this is the first time he keeps the head for several days. This is another thing that that he does a couple times from here on out. He like he's regularly having sex with the head. He also claimed to have a boyfriend girlfriend relationship with the head over the course of a few days. Oh, so he would prop the head up on a chair across the room, just set the head on a chair across from his bed and he would lay in bed and have conversations with it practice his conversation skills yeah 
I mean, that's another similar thing to like, yeah. What a fucking loser. I mean, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, he then buries the he buries her head in the garden right under his mom's bedroom window. I was gonna say, and it, isn't it pointed in the direction of the window too? Yes. Yeah. He, yeah. He says he says he did this because his mother quote always wanted people to look up to her. <laughs> Man, that is just nuts. Mm. Eddie Kemper working on his type five for the comedy store. What a joke. Yeah. Um, he discards the rest of her remains by throwing them off a cliff near the ocean. Um, he said he like he got the torso into the water. But it may, it exhausted him so much that he, the rest of them didn't quite make it to the water, and they get found. So they end up finding everything except the upper torso and the right hand. Um, okay. Yeah. And, like, there is... When he does the dismembering, he and this stuck with me for some reason, he, <clears throat> he dismembered and de- decapitated her with an axe in his mother's bathtub which for some reason that like that really stuck with me I mean that it was like in his mom's bathtub yeah no I mean it makes sense that's where he's living at the time right yeah but I think it was like her personal bathtub like an ensuite bathroom or something yeah okay yeah (laughs) like that seems like a very deliberate choice you know what I mean (laughs) yeah yeah his rage God. toward her is definitely getting more like outward. Yeah. Oh, without a know? doubt. Yeah. Um, one of the pathologists later says that she was cut into pieces with a power saw. And this is like, this is another example of his story. Not maybe not being a hundred percent reliable, you know, yeah. like doing it with an ax is a little more theatrical. I mean, yeah, right? of course. So like, that may just be a little flavor he puts on the story. Okay. You know what I mean? It may have been. Yeah, I'm, been I could assault. see that. That's fair. Yeah. So at this point, after this murder, now that three white girls and, you know, one Japanese girl, but they, they really it's just that now this is happening multiple times to white girls. So now they like, they really take notice, the authorities. Yeah. Um, and they put out this statement warning women to avoid getting into cars that don't have campus stickers. Yes. On them. But the fun- problem is that doesn't really cut Ed out. I was going to say, because he's driving the car that has his mother's yeah, mother's she, campus, like, campus sticker on it. Yeah, he has the, the big A sticker for all access so that he can get in and out of campus and pick her up when he drives her to and from yeah. work. How convenient yep. is that? Yeah. It's, I mean, some might say that he went after those girls because of the convenience. I mean, probably. Like, because he was around the colleges and all that all the time. His mom worked there, all that. So, also, it was always the college girls that his mom was like, those are too good for you. Like, stay away from those girls. No, I won't introduce you to them. They're they're too good for you. You know what I mean? So, all this really is just a huge fuck you to Clarnell. Mm Mm-hmm. It 100% is. Um, Then the following month, on February 5th of 73, he has, like, a super bad argument with his mom. Like, a knockdown, drag-out fight with his mom. And he leaves the house in search of victims. He runs into 23-year-old Rosalind Heather Thorpe, 
and 20-year-old Alice or Allison Liu. Um, and this is on his mom's campus, the UCSC campus. Yeah. Um, according to Kemper, Thorpe entered the car first, and she reassured Lou about getting the ride. She talked Lou into the ride because Lou was a little leery about mm-hmm. getting in the car. Um, he first shoots Thorpe and then shoots Lou, both of them in the head with his pistol, while still on campus. He doesn't even get off campus before he shoots them. He wraps their bodies in blankets and puts them in the trunk. And then he brings them back to his mom's house. This time he beheads them in his car. He couldn't even, he was so amped up. Nope. He was so fucking amped up that he couldn't wait to get in the car. He cuts there. He goes around to the trunk. He opens the trunk on parked on the street. In front I don't of his mom's like, house. plastic down or something to like, you know, suck a, like to hold some of this blood. His car was, dude, his I'm, car I'm was sure. covered in blood. Yeah. Fucking covered. Like, any cop that pulled him over would be like, people have died in this car. Oh, without a doubt. Obviously. There have been some dead things in here. Uh, yeah. yeah. That would raise a huge, huge alarm yeah. with anybody. Yeah, you would think so. So, parked out on the side of the road in front of his mom's house, he gets out, goes around, opens the trunk, and cuts these two women's heads off in the trunk. Like, literally, anyone if anyone walked by or looked out the window, he's just openly beheading women on the side of the street. Yeah. That's fucking bonkers, dude. But again, this guy, I'm sure he felt untouchable. Yeah. The longer it went, the more and the the tighter the more he, was he felt in that way with, with the police, and because I mean he continued these relationships. Oh yeah, yeah. Hanging out with the cops didn't stop when he started right killing. He hung out with them more, and again, if and, anything, to try and learn the other side. And he would also give because I mean there were several months in between each of the killings. He would give other people yep. rides, and also find out about himself and what they were saying about him as this killer. Yeah. Yep. Just was, he said, he said more often than not, people he picked up wanted to talk about the guy that was out killing hitchhikers. I'm sure. And um, he's he also said, interestingly enough, he said that if someone, if a girl that he picked up brought up the the killings, they had a free ticket out. That he would be too embarrassed after having a conversation to admit that he was actually the killer. That's insane. It's so weird. One, one other right? thing I thought. He's so childlike. Right, yeah. One other thing I thought was weird about this is the fact that he wanted so much to attend the funerals of his victims. Yes. And that he, he couldn't because a lot of these detectives and, and people that were investigating into it were there during this. So yeah. he, yeah, felt. <laughs> yeah. That's another thing he said he learned from his cop buddies and from watching TV. He learned that. Um, one of the ways that they that they caught killers was they by they would come. have someone photographing everyone that came to the funeral and they would look up everyone yeah, yeah. so he he resisted the urge to attend their funerals but how messed up is that though Dude. yeah man this ugh. I know. Again, I felt bad for his childhood I do not feel bad about any the, the way he put himself no. into anything going further yeah, we'll make sure absolutely. that that's out there. Yes. Yeah. This guy it's, is a legitimate piece of shit. 
and yeah. deserved everything that he got and should have deserved. Yep. He deserved way more, but yeah. I mean, I I feel like a, a murderer going to the funeral is the same as how like an arsonist always wants to stand in the crowd and watch the building burn. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like they just want to see their handiwork. Exactly. Yeah. They're it's proud disgusting. of it. Yeah. It's, it's messed up. It's really messed up. Yeah. So he carries the corpses headless into his mother's house. He has sex with them. He then dismembers the bodies, removing the bullets to prevent identification like before and discarded their remains the next morning. Um, some remains were found at Eden Canyon a week later and more were found near route one in March. So over the next like, you know, month or so right. they start finding pieces. Um, when questioned in an interview as to why he decapitates his victims, he explained, this is the quote. He says, the head trip fantasies were a bit like a trophy. You know, the head is where everything is at. The brain, eyes, mouth, that's the person. I remember being told as a kid, you cut the head off and the body dies. The body is nothing after the head is cut off. Well, that's not quite true. There's a lot left in the girl's body without the head. Jesus. Yeah. Man. I apologize for any person that this is disgusting. Yeah. Um, you know, because it is, it's absolutely disgusting. It's and a that, lot. Yeah. It's the fact that you can just be so nonchalant. Yes. Yeah. It's yeah. It's unsettling. Man, like, yeah, it just, it makes my stomach hurt. He, wow. I mean, he distances himself constantly yeah. from it. I think that's one of the things that allows him to remain so nonchalant. Like he'll say things like she ended up getting her throat slit instead of I ended up slitting her throat. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, he's just in the, even in his language, you can, he's constantly trying to distance himself from the actions. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Now, it was after this point, correct me if, if it's, I'm incorrect in the timeline, that the police end up getting a tip that he had purchased a gun. And so they investigate into it, and they had no reason to suspect him of anything. And they told yep. him, we're, str- we're just following up because we know that you purchased a gun. So he like, takes yep. him to his closet in his bedroom and shows him several handguns and like rifles or whatever he has. Yeah. And then at the same time, there's a handbag of one of his victims plus a box of random mementos yep. that before the police notice, he like deters them and is like, oh, I have more in my car. Come and check it out. Yep. Yeah, he... um. Because he panics at first. And it's funny because when they, when they, um, cause a lot of the, these cops are friends with that. Right. Of course. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they don't know about his past with his grandparents. Yeah. Um, but they realize when they get that a tip that he bought a handgun and you're not allowed to own a handgun if you've been convicted of a felony or if you've been institutionalized but his, for his record was expunged. Crimes. So he, it right. wouldn't matter at that point. But, it still triggers even expunged you're not allowed to buy a handgun um so the cops realize that he has this whole big redacted section of his file because back then it wasn't on a computer they didn't just delete it if it got expunged they redacted it with just they just took a black marker over it and the cop later talks about how he could read through the marker really well, okay. What was in the file? 
and he sees that their friend Ed was put in an insane asylum for murdering his grandparents. <laughs> yeah. So, at this point, the cops are like, hey, did you fuck, did you know Ed killed his grandparents? <laughs> like, and that'd be quite like, a conversation to have about your, your you know, yeah. dear friend. Yeah, you your know, bar Everybody buddy. loves Ed sort of thing. Yep. So, the cops literally draw straws to see who has to go try to take a gun from six foot nine Ed Kemper. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, man. Um, but Ed panics when they show up because, funny enough, the one who draws the straw is like this rookie cop. Yeah. It's like this little tiny guy, and he talks about how when he comes up, Ed is sitting in his car with his legs hanging out of the driver's seat, and he he's one of them that hasn't actually met Ed and he's like excuse me sir and Ed he said he um he stood there and watched Ed Kemper get out and get out and g- keep getting out of the car <laughs> like he had no idea That's how like big he was your first run in with the Sasquatch yeah like exactly how, yeah yeah so and um but Ed talks about how he panicked at first because um because he wanted to know if they were there for the 45 or for the 22 that right. he'd been using in the killings. And he said, if the guy had said it's a 22 caliber, he would have killed him. He would have killed the cop and got in his car and took off. Um, yeah, but they were there for the 45. So he gives him the gun and that's pretty much it. Yeah. It's just a, a crazy he actually had a girl with him too Ed had a girl with him that day she was oh, I, sitting I in the car with him yeah. yeah and uh he he also said that if um if they hadn't showed up she probably would have ended up being one of one of his victims okay so yeah well, good on you Sacramento or wherever you're at police Santa Cruz Santa Cruz there it is yeah this young little rookie saved that girl's life that's insane. Yeah. So after this, he's a little bit spooked. Yeah. Because this of is course. the first time the cops have just showed up at his house, right? And he goes through this period where he's testing himself by picking up women just to see if he can resist killing them. And he does this with dozens of girls. Like one pair that he talks about, he said they looked exactly like his first victims. Um, and they got in the car and they told him where they wanted to go, but they gave him they had the wrong directions on how to get there. Right. And he's like, no, 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 you got to go this way. I know these are, I know how to get you there. Just relax. And he said he scared those girls more than any of the girls he actually killed. <laughs> Cause they, they were terrified. Yeah. And he said that if he had gone the way that they were insisting on going, he would have driven right by the scene of the first murder. Well, wow. Like it was a, a, a strange coincidence for him. And then he spent the next week talking himself into finally killing his mom. Right. And yeah, now we're to it. A whole so, week that he planned this out. Yeah. I mean, he probably planned it out for, you know, as long right, as he's been alive. True, yeah. But <laughs> yeah. On um something tells me that first house cat in his mind was Clarnell. I mean, you yeah. know what I mean? Uh, that's, yeah. that's probably what he called it. He's been working his way up to that yeah. ever since. Um so on April 20th, 1973 um, 52-year-old Clarnell is coming home from a party. She wakes up Ed on accident like 
not Isn't purposely, it like four but he in wakes the up when or she... something like yeah. super late. Yeah. Yep. It's in the middle of the night, and he wakes up when she comes in. He uh, walks into her room, and she's sitting on the bed reading a book, and she says that classic fucking shitty line that I think completely encapsulates her personality. Yeah. She looks up and just says, I suppose you're just going to want to sit up all night and talk now. And he says, no. (laughs) Good night. And he walks away. Right. He goes to his bedroom and waits four hours. Waits for four hours in his bedroom to make sure she's asleep. Yeah. Um, It's early morning by now. He walks in and he hits her in the face with a claw hammer. He, um... She starts, like, rolling around and, like, writhing, sort of, of is the way he puts it. So he slits her throat with a pen knife. Um, he said that he was shocked that she died just as easily as the rest of them. I mean, he's probably built up this, like, thing that his mother was, like, this yeah. almost yeah. The monster, right? Yeah. And he, like, he he's expected it to be more the, difficult. The monster, yeah. Yeah. I that's like a perfect view of how he saw her right like sort of like if you were playing a video game and the boss was just as easy to kill as the the guys on the way there you know what i mean like to him this was like his boss battle it's almost anticlimactic at that point yeah that's yeah that's the way he describes it is like it wasn't what he thought it would be he said it went super quick and he was he was surprised by that And he also says um, he decided after he killed her that what was good enough for the rest of his victims was good enough for his mom. So he treats her the same way. He um, Decapitates her. Yep. And as he puts it, humiliated her corpse. And then didn't Um, he also shove her like vocal cords or something down the garbage disposal? Yeah. Yep. He, um, yeah, he put her... He cut out her tongue and her vocal cords, and he shoved them down the garbage disposal. Um, and he said that <clears throat> he said the garbage disposal couldn't break down the vocal cords and like ejected the like spit it back out yeah. into the sink, right? And he said, "quote That seemed appropriate, as much as she'd bitched and screamed and yelled at me over so many years. Even even when she was dead, I couldn't get her to shut up." <laughs> yeah yep um wow he yeah he put her head up on a shelf in the living room and he said he screamed at it for an hour before he started throwing darts at it dark dark practice (laughs) yeah Uh, it's not funny it's not fun it's yeah it's not funny yeah um he hit her corpse in the closet he um on the way to the bar he runs into a friend that owes him ten dollars. Okay. And the guy paid him. And Kemper said that he was so hyped up and his like bloodlust was still raging so hard that if that guy would not have had the ten dollars, he would have killed him. Damn. Yeah. Like he was on the brink of Berserker. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean he's still riding that high. Yeah. And he said because the killing his mom was actually disappointing. It wasn't the, like, battle that he expected so it to the be. dissatisfaction and... Yeah, he just wanted more. Yeah. Yeah. So, when he gets back, he calls his mom's best friend. 
um, Taylor or Sally. Sally. She right, went by yeah. Sarah, Sarah, Sarah. Her name was Sarah Taylor Hallett, yeah. but she went by Sally. Um, he calls her over to have dinner, like come over and have dinner with Sylvie mom. Sylvie made a dinner for the movie. And, right, was, yep. Yeah. Yeah. When she arrives, um, she says the quote that he relays. He says, like, the irony will never leave him. He says the first thing she said when she walked in was, let's have a seat. I'm dead. <laughs> wow. Yeah. A little foreshadowing there. <clears throat> yeah, a little bit. Um, as soon as she sits on the couch, he hits her in the head with a brick. He walks up behind her and hits her in the back of the head with a brick. And then he strangles her to death with the same scarf that he used to strangle Aiko Ku that he had kept. He would have been smart. He would have, like, seduced the mom's friend just to, like, as, like, a as, like a final, like, hur- hurrah, basically. Right. It's unfortunate. He explained the killing of Sally in two different ways, in two different interviews. So, initially he said that it, that he did it to create a cover story, that he was going to kill them both, and then he was going to have a cover story that look- they'd gone away on vacation. Uh, right. I know there was one about, like, a burglary scene or whatever, right? Yeah, he talked he talked a little bit about that too, but he also in an interview has said again <clears throat> again going back to the like cop out bullshit, he says that he killed her because she was the only person on earth that would miss his mother. Yeah. And he wanted to spare her from missing his mom. I mean, he he always has his victims counterparts in mind. Yeah. <laughs> what a knight in shining oh, armor man, this guy yeah, is. He's such a piece of shit. Uh, so he puts Hallett's corpse in a, in a separate closet, um, and um, he leaves a note for the police because he thinks he's it's over at this point. Right, the cops yeah. are gonna like zoom in; they're gonna they're gonna be on his ass after this, right? So he leaves a note that says, "Approximately five fifteen a.m. Saturday. No need for her to suffer anymore at the hands of this horrible, murderous butcher. It was quick." asleep the way I wanted it. Not sloppy and incomplete, gents. Just the lack of time. I got things to do, with two exclamation points. Jeez. I'm not even sure what all that means. He's got things to do. I'm, I'm fucking busy. <laughs> I got... Can't spend all wow. night murdering my mom. I got shit to do. It's weird. He's got it's things weird. to do and stuff to see. Stuff and things. Yeah, exactly. Um, afterward... Kemper, he he leaves the scene and he drives nonstop over a thousand miles and he's like popping caffeine pills right? trying to stay awake. He drives for three days and he ends up in Pueblo, Colorado. So he's checking like the news. He thinks he expects to be the you know, the focus of a manhunt. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no fucking news. No, nobody finds them. Like nobody cares. Like, Clarnell takes three days off, and nobody gives a shit. Yeah. Um, He had guns and ammo in the car, because, like, he honestly, he expected, like, a shootout with the cops. Like, his his initial plan, I think, was suicide by cop. Yeah. I mean, that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that was the plan. But after he doesn't hear news on the radio for three days, um, he stops at at a payphone, and... He confess. He calls the the police in Santa Cruz and confesses to killing his mom and and uh, her friend. Right. And they didn't believe him. 
They didn't take it seriously. They're like over the course of several hours, he calls back over and over and over mm-hmm. again, and they're just like, "Oh, I think I think Big Ed's drunk. He's like fucking around." That <clears throat> eventually he asks to speak to an officer that he really knows, right. like closely. His name's uh, I think he's a detective actually, but his last name's Sturgill. Um, and he confessed to him, and he believes him. Yeah, he takes it seriously. And they send the cops to to come and get him. When they come and get him, he immediately confesses that he's the co-ed killer. That he killed six others. Um, yeah. He just needed to finish out what he had initially set set himself up to do, but never had the balls to do. Yeah. And another bitch-ass quote from him. He said that he went on the road instead of going straight to the police station because he was worried that they would shoot first and ask questions later, and he was terrified of violence. <laughs> Jesus. Really? Yeah. Well, that's one way to show it. Terrified of it. And Steve is obviously... Fucking piece of garbage. Obviously messed up in the head. Yeah. I mean... Like... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's... Yeah, that goes without saying, right? Like... with Yeah. Absolutely. He's not a normal human mind. Um, he's asked in an interview why he turned himself in. Obviously, that's a question they all get to eventually. Because there's a solid chance he could have kept going and going and going. Yeah. Like, he could have killed for months or years I mean, more. Yeah, of course. Because they had no... They didn't even have the first thought that it was him. No idea. Um, he says, quote, The original purpose was gone. It wasn't serving any physical or real or emotional purpose. It was just a pure waste of time. Emotionally, I couldn't handle it much longer. Toward the end there, I started feeling the folly of the whole damn thing. And at the point of near exhaustion, near collapse, three days on pills and driving, Mm -hmm. um, I just said to hell with it and called it all off. There's also a chance, because a lot of displacement killers don't ever get to the actual target of their rage. You know, like they might be killing women who look like their ex-wife or they're killing women who look like their mom or they're, you know, and they never actually get there. Yeah, so they just course. go until they're caught. But he actually got there. So maybe after he killed his mom, he realized that was like, what he needed. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the urge was just not there anymore. I mean, and, and that like looking at it like that does make sense. You know, again, finally yeah. slayed the dragon at the end. Right, and really nothing else to to go for. Yeah, the game's over. Yeah, it's yeah, it's crazy. It is. I mean, the fact that a person can do and react and feel like that is just absolutely wild. Yeah, it's. I think it's his experience with life is so different than my own. Well, yeah, of course. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, and I know that's like. That's obvious, but like, it's so hard to imagine any single aspect of his reality. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, there isn't a single touchstone. No, for me when I try to broken. You know, like it's it's not. There's no way to rationalize it. There's not. I mean, again, childhood. Yes, that is groomed him into the person he became. I think. Yeah, you know, and I I continue to to think that i think that but there were yeah 
Good. I was just saying. Go ahead. Yeah, I think that the way his mother mother reacted to him as a person and the way that she treated him, like I, I think there was always this like need to feel like getting back at her in some shape, form, or whatever. And maybe he didn't know how to do that at first. And it became yeah. like these first victims were like that way of just like a big F you, you know, like Yeah. Who knows? I See, and I think I definitely think his upbringing had something to do with it, had a lot to do with it. But there are people who endure that kind of torture and abuse as children who who don't murder coeds. I mean, yeah, you know what I mean. True. Like my dad had an incredibly brutal childhood, like tortured and abused constantly by his stepmother. And to my knowledge, he never murdered anybody. So, like, it that's always my disconnect with that reasoning. Like, of course, with serial killers, especially, we're going to talk nature versus nurture, yeah. right? But I really do think it's it takes a special combination of both I, to create I someone agree. like this. Yeah. Like, you have to be nat- naturally inclined toward violence, toward emotional disconnection. Which we know. And then on top of that, we know there was some of that as a child. Yeah. You know, his, absolutely. You know, Killing animals, weird comments and, about his teacher, and right? Killing stuff animals, like that. yeah. Of yeah. course, playing gas chamber. Yeah, I mean, maybe. yeah. <laughs> Jeez, man. Yeah, yeah. It's, so it's I think a, there was a, a darkness one. inside him from the jump. Yeah, and I think that was just nurtured by the terrible trauma that his mother put him Agreed. through. Agreed. I think yeah. that, honestly, I mean, that makes a it makes a massive difference in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, yeah. Just a couple quick notes about his like trial and stuff, yeah. and then we'll wrap this monster of an episode up. Um, so he pleads initially pleads not guilty by reason of insanity, right? And the psychiatrists at the trial are like, no fucking way. Nope, he is sane. He understands what he did was wrong. He knew while he was doing it that it was wrong. He planned things. He sit. He sat and rehearsed things. I mean, he showed remorse by As- being embarrassed yeah exactly yeah and his case would go on to be like the the blueprint for how they handle insanity pleas in california to this day the idea that it like they set up very strict guidelines for what counts as not guilty by reason of insanity based off his trial um so he gets sentenced to life in prison multiple life sentences Mm -hmm. um and he requests openly in court requests that the judge sentence him to death and the death penalty had been suspended for a little while in California right, at yeah, that point. Which, um, the fact that he, that's, that was his go-to. That's what he wanted. That's what he requested. Yeah. I'm, He's, I mean, that, that dis, I mean, obviously he had already been found guilty at that point, but that completely disproves the idea that he was insane yeah, during the, agreed. you know, like he didn't know because, and he says all the time, like, he, you rarely ever hear him say like I'm sorry for what I did there's really no remorse yeah. but he'll say like what I did was wrong like what I did was terrible he'll say things like that like he knows what he did was wrong but he's not sorry for it right of course because you have to feel some emotion for what you know what you cause damage to in order to actually be apologetic I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, and fun fact during this time, there was actually another serial killer in Santa Cruz, California, 
Wow. At the same time. Yeah, named Herbert Mullen. And he killed 13. So that's another thing that, like, slowed shit down with the I police. Because they had two going on at the same time and intertwining. They end up being in the same prison for a while. <laughs> wow. Um, and Kemper used to... He hated Herbert Mullen. He called him, like, a, um, like a, a no-good... What did he call him? He like yelled. There's a famous. He like yelled that he was a no good killer, a no account killer, like that he just killed people for no reason, right. and he felt like he had reasons for his. Um, but he used to throw water at Herbert, and he said that when he was a good boy, he'd give him peanuts. <laughs> like he was constantly. He called him Herbie because he hated being called yeah. that. Like he just tortured this other fucking loser. And yeah, in he the, felt like he prison. had a place to do so. Yeah. Man, what a trash can. Yeah. He also had a second career, basically, while in prison. He recorded over 5,000 hours of audiobooks for the blind. I was going to say, didn't he also like teach classes and stuff? Like a, yeah. like a technology course or something like that? And Yep. I have to say, I'm super pissed about the idea of them giving audiobook reading jobs to prisoners instead of me. <laughs> <laughs> I want that job. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's the life, right? Yeah. But, you know, yeah. you got to give something to somebody that literally can't do anything yeah. all day long. Read this. He also book. supposedly, yeah, right. He also supposedly wrote a series of short stories, but no one can seem to find them anywhere. So, I don't know. But he's alive to this day. He's at Folsom State Prison. Yeah. Still there, chilling, man. Yeah, that's insane. It just again as just a person that can do and react and can feel the way that he did, I guess. And you know, it, to me, it's just crazy. Yeah, but he's obviously it's, not. You know, I mean, he's not all there, but he's sane enough to be sane. Yeah. I mean, he's a, to me, he's a study in the extremes of humanity. Yeah, I agree. You know what I mean? He's an extreme reaction to trauma, extreme, extreme implementation of trauma, like extreme disassociation. Like everything about him is the exact edge of, I think, what humans are capable of. Agreed. Yeah, man, this this was a this is a crazy, a very, very, very hard hitting, hard hitting case, and we've not yeah. done you know, any serial killers or anything. And I mean, we've only started to dabble in moving in that true crime direction. So, yeah, this is a tough one. Well, this was this was a dip straight into the deep end. Yeah, yeah, it's like getting shoved in and be expected to swim when you have no idea how to do so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a lot. I enjoyed it though. Oh, I know same. I know it's same. weird to say that, but like and we talked about this over on Patreon a little bit, but like it's I I'm just fascinated by those extremes, right? And it it's a reflection of the time. It's a reflection of, you know, it it's a dive into psychology and sociology yeah. and yeah, it's it's a lot. I lo- I loved it. A true tale um, of the strange and unsettling absolutely Mm -hmm. and i think with that we'll wrap this beast up let's do it and that concludes episode 107 edmund kemper thank you thank you thank you 
from the bottom of our weird, possibly alien, maybe ghostly, probably cryptid hearts for listening. We absolutely love having the chance to discuss all these wild creatures and events every week, and it's your continued attention that allows us to carry on. We want to get to know each and every one of you, so please come and check us out on all the socials. At campfire.tales.podcast on Instagram and Facebook, at campfire.totsau on Twitter, and you can also visit our website at campfirepodcastnetwork.com. If you love the show, please rate and review it. It's what truly helps us continue bringing your weekly dose of the strange and unsettling. And a special thanks to Greg Martin at Reverent Music on Instagram for his contributions to the beautiful music that you hear every week under the debrief. You can find more of his tunes at ReverbNation.com slash Reverent. It's fantastic, fantastic stuff. Go give that a listen. And that's it. Until next time, I'm Ryan. I'm Jordan. And remember, campers, stay weird and trust in the unknown.